It's good to be with you this morning. You guys can grab a seat. It's a little dreary, a little rainy outside, but it's good to be in this space singing songs about our King, about our God. Um, I hope you had a really good weekend. Hey, thanks, man. We, um, we had a pretty good weekend at our house, mostly good. Um, till last night, uh, my neighbor, who is a, a full-grown human man, decided to start a garage band at like 10 at night, and it just wasn't good for anyone. It, it, was, it was a little bit rough. But we woke up this morning, and I don't know if you know this, but we are officially 44 days until Christmas. I'm excited. I don't know about you. Um, in fact, tonight, uh, when, when we get home, we're going to be putting up our first tree, Harvey tree number one. There'll be, there'll be more to come, but, but we're pretty excited, so it's a good weekend. Um, my name is Adam. I'm part of the teaching team here, and I'm privileged to be opening scripture with you this morning. Uh, we've been in a, a teaching called The Story that we've been going through this entire year, and we have been walking through books of the Bible and learning the story that God teaches us through his word. And it's, it's been illuminating, it's been challenging, it's been really good. And specifically this fall, we've been in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, if you've been around, um, it's, it's, it's been really good. It's been um, just personally good for me. And the thing about per, 1 Peter is it's a book written to people who are a lot like us. Now, yes, they live in a different time, almost 2,000 years ago, uh, without all the technology we have, you know, no cell phones and flushing toilets, and, and, and it's in a different place in the world, but it, there are people kind of like us because there are people trying to figure out what it's like to follow this Jesus in the midst of a chaotic world. And so a couple of themes that, that, that keep coming to the surface week after week as we go through this book are, are, are first this theme that we have this living hope in God. That because of who Jesus is, because he went to the cross and God raised him from the dead, every morning that we will open our eyes, we wake up to the reality that we have this living hope. And the second thing that, that keeps coming to the surface is because of this living hope, we live differently than the world. We live shaped and changed because we are people of hope. And so we're going we're gonna to continue in this teaching. Um, today we're in 1 Peter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading 6 through 11. If you've got a Bible, flip there. It's towards the back. If you need a Bible, um, they're on the shelves in the wings. And I'm going to start us in verse 6. And uh, it says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. These are powerful words, aren't they? The implications of this scripture and, and, and what Peter is, is uh, directing us to towards looking at. And, 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 and this first phrase that, that really steps out, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a coffee cup um, scripture, meaning you probably see it on its own in certain places, but it's, it's this phrase, cast all your anxieties on him, 
on God because he cares for you. So we need to talk a little bit about this word anxiety and, and, and what it means and, and what it looks like in the application of our lives. Uh, simply put, anxiety is the, uh, the effect, the response we have in the midst of fear, right? I mean, it's a pretty common experience that we get anxious about things or we get worried about things that are outside of our control and our response is to be in a posture of, of worry and fret and fear. And to some degree, we all experience this. It's, it's part of the human condition, right? To some degree, we all experience this. And it's, it, it can be as small as, as, as something like um, yesterday, I, uh, I wanted to buy a basketball goal for our, our kids in our front yard, and I found one on Craigslist for super cheap. It's my love language. I love cheap things. And so I, I drove across town. I live in North Portland. I drove all the way to Southeast Portland. And when I got there to pick it up in my truck, it was, it was all put together. It was not torn apart. So there, here's this 10-foot basketball goal. My truck bed is four foot. Now, if you do the math, it means a six foot of basketball goal hanging out of the back of my truck. This isn't legal. If there's cops here, it's too late. The deed is done. You can't do anything now. So I, I tie it down and, and, and I'm beginning to drive through the city and I, I have my oldest daughter with me and, and I'm feeling anxious, right? Kind of white knuckling on the knuckles, looking around for cops. In my mind, I think if I can just get to North Portland, I'll blend in. No one will ever notice. <laughs> That's, that's kind of a passing, fleeting experience of anxiety. Like, I'm a little bit worried. I'm nervous. As we, as we ascend that, that ladder of anxiety, it, it grows to be something that can be much larger. Like our lives. How are we going to take care of ourselves? Where are we going to work? Relationships. Our health. These big things that, that can sometimes feel like they're outside of our control and can give us opportunity for worry, for fear, for anxiety. And as I talk about anxiety, I also want to distinguish, I said it a moment ago, that all of us deal with some form of, of, of fear and anxiety, but some of us deal with it a lot. I mentioned that, that this is a, a coffee mug scripture, and it's certainly been that in my life. I have probably audibly and in my heart recited this scripture more than any other passage because this is something that I've dealt a lot with in my life. And I can't really talk about anxiety without acknowledging that, that there is a place for, for mental illness and, and, and mental challenge in this, that some of us are predisposed towards anxiety and towards things like depression, and, 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 and we cast our cares and these anxieties on God, but, but we also reach out for, for help. We reach out to places like, like professional counselors and at times even medication, and, and, and both of which are things that, that I've had to do in my life because this, this has been something that, that I've had to revisit over and over again as this anxiety whelms up. I'm once again led to the feet of Jesus to cast this over and over. And if that's you, this is a safe place for that. This is a safe church for that, where there is not shame, where we will champion you, we'll pray with you, we will stand with you. And, and, and I can tell you, I know what that experience is like. And Peter leads us with this anxiety to bring it before our loving Father. So where, where does this anxiety come from? Anxiety comes at the point that our control stops. Right? We, we don't control everything. There are things around us in this world that I just can't control. 
I, I can't control the economic situation around us. I can't control the real estate market. There's, there's these things that we can't control. We just got, went through our voting season, and, and though I think it's this incredible privilege that we get to vote and do these things, oftentimes I feel like my vote and my say doesn't control or do anything. This world around me is, is not controlled by me. I, I can't control other people. When my wife and I decided to have children, in my mind, I have a plan for their lives. They're not sticking to it. They're doing their own thing. They have their own will. I, I, I can't control them. And, and, and the reality of that sometimes sets in and, and there's opportunity for worry and for fret. I mean, sometimes I, I can't even control myself. Sometimes the things that I set out to do, I, I find myself not doing. We, we read about this in Romans 6 from Paul, a man who wrote much of the, the New Testament. He says, the things that I, I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And the things that I do want to do, I find myself not doing. Oh, that a wretched man that I am. The lack of control there. We, we, we don't control our, our future. We, we, don't control, we don't control God. right? And so we are faced with this reality that we have all of this stuff that we care about, that's very important, that pulls at our heart, that we cannot control. And so we're, we're faced with a choice. What do we do with this lack of control? Now we could uh, acknowledge that we can't control this and, and, and kind of descend into this world of chaos and, and, and live a life of anxious worry. That I'm constantly aware and I'm constantly afraid because I cannot control these things. And, and, and honestly, that's how much of our world approaches this. There's fear, there's anxiety, there's this, this, this constant fret and worry. Or we come to that crossroad and we say, here's this invitation of God to humble myself before him and cast my anxieties at his feet because he cares for me. This is where Peter is leading us. And as Peter's bringing out this idea, this is not a new idea. In fact, we can look at, at uh, the words of Jesus, and, and this is his words famously spoken at the Sermon on the Mount, where, where he begins to talk about this new kingdom, this new way of being human, this new thing that, that he is bringing from his Father in heaven to this world, and it's so upside down, and, and it's so different. And in uh, Matthew 6, starting in 23, he says this when he's talking about worry and he's talking about anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, or your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, Add a single hour to your life. And so Jesus steps in the midst of this chaos where people are eaten up with fear and anxiety and worry about how to provide. And he says, look at the birds. Uh, your, your father takes care of them. They don't, they don't reap, they don't sow, they don't store up in barns. And yet your, your, your father feeds them and cares of them. You're much more valuable to him than the birds. And he says, look, look this, this chaos, this worrying, who by doing this can even add a single hour to their lives. He continues in 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, or, or another word we could put there is, for the world runs after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be given to you as well. Jesus makes clear, we can't run after all of these things. 
and fret and fear being our motivation in life. But seek first his kingdom and lay these anxieties at his feet. God's desire for us is to be a people of hope and peace in a world of anxiousness. To be a people of hope and peace in a world of absolute chaos. This is his call for us, and this is where Peter is leading. So we're going to look at these, these six verses of, 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 of instruction for Peter, because these two themes in the book of Peter are that we have the living hope, and this is true, and this is real, and because of this living hope, we can live differently. And so he is leading us to think different and to respond differently than the world does when it comes to anxiety. And the first thing that he says, we, we read in the first verse in six, he says, humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand. His instruction here, the prescriptive language here is to posture your soul under God, his goodness and his sovereignty, his provision and his, his rule and his authority. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the, the idea of submission over the last couple months, and it's, it's not a very fun idea, especially in our context, but, but truly the, the, the idea of submission is that we're yielding to something. And the invitation that, that Peter's given us is to yield to God as your source of provision and your source of authority. That's what it looks like to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. This, this idea of, of, of God's hand is used a lot throughout scripture and it's, it's used to communicate his power, that he's, that he's mighty, that he's sovereign, that, that there's nothing above him, but it's also used to communicate his provision for us, to bring us the things that we truly need even to the extent of the cross and his own son on the cross. And so when we're submitting to these things, we're submitting both to his goodness, to his love, but also to his authority and to his lordship. In, in, in John chapter 6, there's this story that, that, that I think helps us get a pretty good picture of this. Jesus, um, when he was on earth, he would, he would go from region to region teaching, and everywhere he would go, people in masses would come around. There, there's a recording of him, of people saying about him, no one, this man teaches like no one else. He has words of authority and of life. And, and all these crowds, sometimes in the thousands, would gather to hear him teach. And, and yet we read about this instant in John 6 where he's teaching a very hard truth. He's given this analogy, and, and it's prophetically speaking about the cross and what's going to happen on the cross and, and what we now know as communion. And he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you, you can't follow me. And this is a hard teaching. And I can picture his 12 disciples be like, dude, man, that's weird. You're, you're freaking everyone out. Go back to the grace stuff. Go back to that lost sheep. They really like that one. Let's, let's stay here. And, and, and yet he lays this hard truth out because it's his authority and it's it's what he's called to do. And, and we pick this up in verse 66. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So they had humbled themselves. They had submitted to this loving savior. But the authority, the sovereign, this peace of God that, that was harder to understand was something that had turned people back. He says, you do not want to leave too, do you? He asked the 12. And Simon Peter who's the same Simon Peter uh, that wrote the book that we're studying right now. I love his, his response. He says, oh, but, but Jesus, you're so loving. Now, whenever I'm with you, you just make me feel good about myself. You, you just encourage me all the time, never make me feel bad. I, I'm not going anywhere. No, he, he says, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's a picture of submitting not just to his provision, but to his sovereignty, to his kingship, his rule in our life. The invitation here from 1 Peter to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God is to humble ourselves to both of those realities. That God is good, he is loving, he can be trusted, and he is above all. His authority and his name are above all. And we, because of those two things, are invited to trust him, to implicitly trust him, to humble ourselves and trust him. Dallas Harkin, in, in a commentary on 1 Peter, says, Peter's point in saying, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, is not to put us in our place before God, but rather to call us to entrust ourselves to God's care in the most radical sense. To call ourselves to trust him even in the most radical sense. Even when it it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand, even when we don't know what he's doing or where he's working, even when it seems he is far away, we are called to entrust ourselves to his care. What does this look like? It looks like factoring the reality of God into every circumstance of our life. I don't know about you, but I have found it much easier to humble myself under the, under the mighty hand of God when things are going really well. Praise God, found the parking spot, things are good, we're healthy, wealthy, and wise, everything's going the direction I want. I find it much more challenging when, when I don't see the work of God evident, when it, when it seems like he's distant when I'm facing trial, when I'm facing frustration. And to humble myself is to acknowledge that he is actively working even when I don't see it, even when I don't understand it. There's a larger perspective. I ran across this, this quote from George MacDonald, and this is um, a man who lived a long time ago. He was an author, he was a pastor, and uh, I love how he says it. He says, the next hour, the next moment is as much beyond our grasp and as much in God's care as that a hundred years away. Worry for the next minute is just as foolish as worry for tomorrow or a day in a thousand years. In neither case can we do anything. In both cases is God doing everything. This is what it means to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God to entrust ourselves in every season that we go through, and every trial, and every victory, that we humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to his care. And the means by which we do this, the, the, the phrase that Peter gives us, he says to cast it, to bring our anxiety before God and to cast it towards him because he's big enough and he cares for us. This, this thing happens sometimes, um, it happens in my home where uh, someone will ask me for help. Maybe they're fixing something, they're trying to open something, put batteries in something, I don't know. But, but they ask me for my help and, and I walk across the room to help and as I reach for it, they're like, well, hold on, hold on. And wait, you know, do, do you need my help? Yes, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. And, and there's an acknowledgement that I can't do this and it's frustrating me, but, but I don't want to give it over. And, and the invitation that Peter has given us is not to bring what frustrates us before God and then to hold it with, with tight fists and say, God, this, ugh, this is really frustrating. Man, I, I can't figure this out. And, 
and, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to let it go. I don't want to yield it. But, but man, ah, this is really frustrating. And, and the invitation here is to come and to, to cast this before God, to lay it in his authority, in his goodness. And it's Tim Keller that says prayer takes our theology and it puts it into action. When we come before God in prayer, these words that are spoken to him, we bring our anxieties and, and, and not holding, not, not in an unyielding way, we, we release them to him. We cast them upon him. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we're abdicating all the responsibilities in our lives, right? It doesn't mean if, if I'm looking for work, oh, I've cast that anxiety on God, now I'm just going to go sit back at home and wait for someone to call. Like, there's still responsibilities. There's still things that we are called to own and to maintain and to steward, but we do it without owning the outcomes and, and, and anxiety that comes from that lack of control. We are invited to cast that before him because, because he cares. Those are three simple words that actually mean a lot. One of the most distinguishing features of, of our faith, our, our faith put in Jesus, is that, that we are... We are in relationship with a God who loves us and we've done nothing to earn that. We're in relationship with a God who is present because of his own choice. We're not searching for some far off deity, doing all of these good deeds, singing all these songs, doing all this discipline so that we can garner his attention and maybe he'll look our way and maybe he'll have affection on us. Our, our, our God cares for us. He's safe. He cares about our anxieties and our fears, the big ones and the small ones, and he invites us to cast them before him. This is something I've done over and over and over, sometimes the same anxiety over and over, and he's never told me that's enough. I'm tired of it. He's present and he cares. Peter continues in verse eight, and he says, be sober or be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a lion, roaring, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter draws our attention to this reality that we need to be prepared, we need to be sober-minded because we have an enemy. If you choose to follow, to follow Jesus, you're given an inheritance. We read this in, in Romans 8. You are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ and you're part of this family now. And, and part of that inheritance is inheriting God's enemy. Right? That, that God has an enemy who's doing everything he can to thwart God's plan and to push against God's authority. And it says it's this roaring lion seeking whom we can devour. What did this look like for Jesus? There's just this, this picture in, uh, in Matthew 4, and we read about this in the life of Christ, that he is um, he's beginning his ministry, right? He's around 30 years old, and, and he goes, and John the Baptist baptizes him, and, and before he begins his public ministry, he's called by the Spirit to go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and fast. And we come to the end of these 40 days and these 40 nights, and the Bible says he was hungry. Yes, okay, thanks for that. He was hungry, and the lion came. The devourer came, roaring, and, and tempted him. And he tempts him three times, and he tempts him, firstly, uh, to turn stones into bread. Hey, if you're really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, tempting him because, because he's hungry. 
And then he takes him and he says, throw yourself down from this cliff because if you're really the son of God, and he quotes Psalms 91 that surely he'll send his angels concerning you and he won't allow him to, 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 to crash to the rocks and, and he tempts him with power and then he takes him up on a high place and, and supernaturally they're able to see all the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you will bow to me, the lion, the one with the roar, if you will bow to me, I'll give you all of this. This, this is the roar. This is the devourer pushing at, at Jesus. And, and three times Jesus responds by saying, it is written. Three times he references this, this book. And of course, it's, it's not this entire book. It was pieces of it. But he references God's word as a means of, of, of resisting and standing firm in the faith. And we read about this in, in Hebrews 4 of this book. It says that the word, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who must give an account. One of the ways that Peter is leading us to stand firm is in this word. Now, I would venture to say, because I know this is true for me, that, that if this word isn't a, a pretty uh, ongoing uh, present presence in my own heart, in my own life, and in my own mind, it's likely the anxiety is. I mean, if this isn't something that, that, that's permeated in my heart and isn't uh, redirecting me back to who this God is and to invite to a humbling beneath his, his mighty hand, it's likely that I can hear the sounds of chaos and the world around me starting to seep into my heart, starting to seize that roaring lion. And we're invited to find ourselves rooted and planted on this word, not just because it's a book, but because it's a living word. And those of us in this room, we, we all probably might have very different relationships with this book. There might be some of us who, who haven't read it very much at all, apart from maybe a few scriptures that you've seen on coffee mugs or somewhere else. And, and approaching this book might seem intimidating, but, but the guarantee, the promise that you have is you read this book in tandem with God's spirit and that it's a living book bringing illumination and life to you. And on the other side of that, there might be some of us who have, who have followed Jesus for a while, maybe decades maybe a lot of decades, and, and we've read this book cover to cover, and, and if this book were, were Moby Dick, yes, you wouldn't need to read it again. It's the story, and you know it, and you can move on, but, but this isn't that kind of book. This book is alive, and when you read it over and over again, it speaks to the season that you're in. It speaks freedom, and it speaks life. It'd be like saying, um, I, I know what a sunset looks like, so I don't need to see anymore, right? I, I do know what a sunset looks like, and every time I see a beautiful one, I'm still in awe. And there's an invitation into this word to re-engage it over and over and over because it's where we stand firm. It's where we find that steadfastness against the evil one's schemes. He goes on in verse 10. And he says, and then the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and make you firm and make you steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. 
the prescription here that Peter is leading us to is to anchor our soul in a God-centered reality. To anchor our soul in, in, in a God-centered perspective. He, he is honest and he says, hey, you're, you're going to suffer a little while. That's, that's part of the human condition. And, and uh, that's, that's been my experience. And I bet that's been your experience. Um, and in and, and, and any presentation of the gospel that says, hey, if you come and follow Jesus, everything will go well. No more, no more sickness, no more problems. No more now, he, Peter says it frankly right here. Hey, you're going you're gonna to suffer for a little while. But God in his faithfulness and his sovereignty will restore you. There's an invitation to raise our eyes above a chaotic world and to anchor ourselves in the reality of who God is. And we can look back from the beginning of creation and see this loving God who has reached out and engaged people, who has loved them all the way to the extent of sending his son to die on a cross to redeem relationship. We, we can hold on to that. And we can look towards the future. In Revelation 21, at the end of all things, it says that God will wipe away every tear and we will be present with him and the chaos of this world will have passed. Peter's inviting the people who are reading this letter 2,000 years ago and us in Portland in 2019 this morning to hold on to those two reality, those two truths that they anchor us in a perspective of who God is. That the God of grace, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we face, will restore. He will do it. It's who he is and he's what he said. And so for that reason, for that reason, we bring our anxieties and we cast them at his feet because he cares for us. I'm going to invite our, our band to, to come back up and we're going to do something that we, we do each and every week um, and that's worshiping by taking communion. Um, the, these tables up here and up there in the back, they have uh, bread and, and juice, the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice representing the blood of Christ that he was teaching about in, in John 6. And, and the invitation is to come and to realize that, that all these things that we can't control, a, another one for the list is, is our own saving, that, that we're not able to save ourselves. But this is something that, that God has done for us when we profess the name of Jesus. And so we're, we're going to come during worship and, and we're going to dip the bread in the juice and, and remember in worship. And, and my invitation for us this morning, my hope, my desire for you and for me is that we walk from this place with a greater awareness and sense of just how good our God is. It's how much he cares for you and for me. He cares about what's troubling us. He cares about what's worrying us, what's keeping us up at night. He's not bothered. It's not a distraction for him. And as you come to this table, my invitation for you is to come and bring those cares, to come and bring those fears, those anxieties, and lay them at his feet and thank him for his faithfulness. Father, um, I'm grateful for these words. I'm grateful that uh, and we, we have your attention and you care. You care about the big things, you care about the little things, and you've given us a standing invitation to come and to bring these things to you. And I pray that we would do so and that we would do it by truly yielding control and that we would get to experience the peace and the hope that you designed us for. We thank you, Lord, in your name.